everybody, and welcome back to some interseason goodness from your boys at Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, is Matt Stockton. Hello, friends. I guess that's an appropriate intro, sure. You don't need a thematic, interesting quote this time. I'll let, I'll let you get away with that. Welcome to the Festival Rundown! <laughs> <laughs> Is that better? You turned into the Welcome to the World of the Tomorrow, tomorrow. guys yeah, from Futurama. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and speaking of guys from the future, also joining <laughs> us, it's Tim Mason. A Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> there we go. Tim can somehow get a, a relevant quote in there, despite Matt's inability that's, to that's, ever get one. That's the thing I bring to the podcast. It's Tim is the best contribution. Of us for the best of us. <laughs> and if you hadn't already guessed from the little best of us reference there, unfortunately it's not a Christmas episode, not yet. <laughs> and not a Seinfeld I, reference either. And not a Seinfeld reference. We're talking about our recent experiences at the BFI London Film Festival 2020, which mm. was a completely online festival that we were members of press for. We applied and were accepted and were given like login details and all this kind of stuff. And for the first time as a podcast, we got press credentials and we're actually like doing coverage and stuff. It's very exciting. It was very mm. cool. We, we've done little press. announcements. We've done our individual reviews for some of the films and all that kind of stuff. I know, Matt, you've written up your reviews Yes. on uh, the redrighthand.co.uk. If you want more details, go and check all of that out. We've got some content that is free on Patreon. If you want to go and check that out and hear more of our sort of like breakdown per film and all that kind of stuff. This episode is going to kind of be a... A blow-by-blow blow account. Exactly. This episode is going to be more of a, a general recap, talk about our highlights, talk about our experience, and for the first time, as the three of us, actually compare notes, because we had crossover <laughs> of some mm. films. And... <laughs> kind of to go behind the scenes we recorded entirely separately for our little mini reviews to the point where we would try and avoid each other's reviews before we reviewed it ourselves hmm. so even if we saw the same film at the same time because they were all like fairly tightly scheduled screenings we would then try and like record completely separately without discussing it as to not influence each other and our reviews and things like that but now we can actually bounce ideas back and forth and, and discuss stuff which is very exciting. I'm, I'm mm. actually looking forward to... Because I've I briefly kind of talked to you guys in, and we have a little group chat and stuff and once the the live reviews would go up, we'd have a little quick like, oh, that's good. Cool. That sounds <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and that's it. But I'm actually quite excited to sit down and chat with you guys and talk about your experiences and stuff. So yeah. before we get to the films themselves, let's start with the fact that it's a completely online festival because this is the state of the world <laughs> these days and we don't really have a choice. Yeah. And I know the three of us in, in various different forms have got experiences, you know, going to conventions and, and doing press coverage and going as members of, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, Matt, I'm going to kick it over to you as probably the most experienced with film festivals of the three of us. How would you say this compared to your previous experience and, and how, how do you feel the BFI kind of handled this unique circumstances that they found themselves in? As Jack already mentioned, when we were recording our individual, almost diaries, as it were, mm. it was very much an in-the-moment account. Um, and then you get to reflect on the whole thing once it's obviously come to a close. Um, you know, all the pros, cons, etc. So having been to festivals in the past, 
there are some genuine pros to this. There are some genuine cons as well, which I'll, I'll, I'll go through, but some of the pros initially, um, and they're kind of, some, some of them are actually the same thing. So just very briefly, a festival usually is um, in a major city somewhere, let's say London in this instance. This you would the have London a, Film Festivals, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, you would have a handful of cinemas, which would be, um, it's almost ticketed in advance that you'd go along to, you'd go for your screening and you'd watch the movie and write your review and so forth. There may be events where you get to talk to the, the filmmakers afterwards, whether it's a group, um, you know, audience Q&A kind of thing or a one-on-one -on -one thing, depending on what kind of standing you have, etc. Sometimes you get junkets, sometimes you get there. Exactly. They're literally in the screening and stay in your seats and you'll get a chance to interview them at <clears throat> yes. the end of the show and all that kind of stuff. Precisely. And I've been to, to both ends. Sometimes you go to a thing where you literally, you've seen the film like a day before um, and then the next day or maybe even you know, prior to seeing the film, sometimes very annoyingly, you have this separate hall where there's a long table strip and obviously the backing uh, behind them has all the promotional material and it's the actors or the director, who the fuck ever being interviewed, taking all questions from the crowd and so on and so forth. Um, and it's all very useful. It's very exclusionary. Um, it's very much the kind of thing whereby, you know, a lot of movies are premiere and there's lots of embargoes and films are bought and sold for distribution sometimes. It's, 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 a, it's a big business, festivals. Um, and it's also a way to get, get your work noticed. So in terms of like the general public, it's, it's a very different experience to just going to the cinema and watching a movie, basically. But the downside to it is that usually it is in multiple buildings. And you're running back and forth. You're trying to keep the schedules all sorted out. And it really wears you down. It's very tiring as an experience. It's very good. But as I mentioned, which is true to... for most festivals, <clears throat> whether oh, that's yeah. no, you know, comic conventions or music festivals, you're yeah. running from either tent to tent or venue to venue or whatever it is. Yeah, it's very much juggling your availability, where you can and can't get. When are you going to eat? Stuff like that, you know. <laughs> um, and the expense of going to London and staying there and all that sort of stuff and and traveling back and forth, etc. Um, etc. Et you don't necessarily obviously have that with an online festival. You have a window. And the window is about an hour. You've, you've got, like, say, the film is starting at 11 o'clock in the morning or at 10 past 11 in the morning. You have an hour with which to start the movie. And then you, you know, watch it and that's great. You can pause it if you need to have a toilet, whatever you need to do. Not for excessive amounts of time. Yeah, they're very strict on this. So mm. you couldn't, if you left it paused, I believe it was for longer than five minutes. Mm. Uh, the page would essentially refresh or the, the player would stop playing. Or if you refresh the page after the hour, so it's, like you said, if it started at 11 mm. and you've watched the first hour and 10 minutes, so it's now mm. 10 past 12, if you accidentally refresh your page, you're fucked. <laughs> and you, you lose your window. They were pretty damn strict on this. And there were a couple of times where they opened up the window for technical issues and a few other reasons. But mm -hmm. in general, it was a pretty tight one to occasionally two hour window where you need to start watching this film and commit to it yeah there was not like a oh i'll come back to, i'll start it and i'll come back to it later kind of thing like once you're in you're in and i'll get to my experience in a moment but i had a couple of times where i was like well i just refreshed that so fuck <laughs> <laughs> that's gone yeah. yeah i had i had a similar experience which i'll come back to but i think overall the major differences are i don't want to say positive because i genuinely think an experience at a festival is very fun you do actually meet more people you're like, hey 
hey, I saw you at the screen like two days ago. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'll speak to you afterwards. That kind of thing. You network in a nice social way. Um, you obviously meet a lot of famous people and get to talk to them about their movies. It's very cool in that regard. There obviously was a lot of that, you know, you could book in to get to these um, Q&A bits and pieces and all that sort of stuff. And that's very interesting. And on the other side of it, you are just literally sitting at your computer watching four films a day in the same seat from a very personal point of view, suffering from sciatica at the time, going, ow, mm -hmm. um, you know, desperately making notes and all that sort of stuff. So again, it depends on how you see it. But then to be fair, sitting at a computer for, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day, that's our lives for the last that's, that's, six, seven months. So, yeah, exactly. That's work yeah. these days for most people. Yeah. So as I say, lots lots of different experiences with with regards to things. I mean, I've I, my 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 most involved was I think in two thousand and five or six, wherever it was, when I went to Edinburgh Film Festival and I was bombing it around all these kind of cinemas, and that was very very cool. I was on my own as well, so it's very intense. the The experience I would say is like going to a theme a theme park on your own. <laughs> Nothing bad. You get on the queue and you queue on your own. You have an experience. You're sat next to a stranger and you just go, hey! You don't buy any photos because well, why would I bother? And it's a very draining day, but it's fun. But also kind of like, oh, I wish kind of be nice to have someone there with. Where with you? He's like, yeah, but if you did, you'd have an argument about which, you know, which direction you're going to go in, when you're going to eat, yada, yada. I don't want to go on that ride. It's too scary. Oh, but I do. <laughs> Fucking hell. So you have all those sort of compromises you don't need. Um, but yeah, I, I will say, and I've said this before in my run, in mini rundowns, the BFI did a really, really good job, if I'm, in my opinion. The London Film Festival specifically was run very well. The technology side of it. I, mean, I know the BFI have a streaming player service, so it makes sense they'd have everything they would need to do. This. From yeah, from what I understood, they used the same technology and the same player and all that kind of yes. stuff. Which we also had access to an archive of films through the BFI player as well. So there's that side of it as well. It's not like that they've had no notice on this one. It's it's oh, no, not exactly, like yeah. the Rona came in and two weeks later it was the film festival and everyone was still running around with their, you know. Like chickens yeah. without heads. Exactly. Which a lot of festivals did have, or had to just cancel altogether, all sorts of things. Mm. Um, and I think it's nice to have it go ahead rather than just cancel it altogether or something. I think this is a very strong thing. And next year, fingers crossed, things will be, I don't say normal, I don't think normal exists anymore, but back to a <laughs> sense of normality. But I think this is one of those things that's opened a door that, like, huh, I think this was a good success. Everything's watermarked, there's less. I mean, obviously, from a from a filmmaker's point of view, you have to trust this festival not to just have your film then pirated to fuck. Mm. But obviously, these things are very str uh, strictly controlled and things. Um, the embargoes are all very much respected. So, yeah, I think it was um, very well organized from their part. Tim, how about you? How was your experience with the BFI London Film Festival this year? Yeah, I mean, I have no previous experience of, of film festivals in particular. I've done a lot of coverage of... Uh, tech industry events um, where there's there's a certain amount of common ground of a lot of running back and forth from different halls to make sure you're covering the right speeches or whatever and in fact uh, one of the ones that I've been to several times is in uh, based in the Picture House Central in London which I'd imagine mm. would probably be one of the venues uh, on, an, on a normal year for the London Film Festival uh, mm. and so I've been crammed in the tiny uh sweaty press room in there on several <laughs> occasions um but yeah this this was my first uh film festival um and yeah i think i mainly just echo like matt's thoughts of like they they got it to run 
pretty smoothly given how much of a a departure this is from the usual um i didn't attend any of the kind of uh the press q and a's i don't think any of us did no um, no, no. Uh, so they, which would have been give us an option for that in a similar kind of junkety kind of way where you would get a slot you can do it as some of them are group calls they called it like afternoon tea with so and so. Yeah. And they would basically sit around and you can chat and take it in terms of answer questions and stuff. And there were other ones that were more strict kind of junket things where you got, I believe, a ten minute window with a particular director, producer, actor, whoever it was, and mm. they would basically cycle you through through one giant Zoom call, essentially. So But we didn't do any of that. As far as I know, yeah. the three of us pretty much just watched the Most films of it that were was, debuting there. Most of it was down to the fact that it was clashing with other films I was watching. And it was like a case of like, oh, you know, we scheduled it for 10 a.m. on this this day. It's like, yeah, but there's a German film I'm watching on that day. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shit. I, I, I'll watch. I'd rather, and it sounds awful to say this, but I'd rather watch more um, films than, I mean, even, you know, because interviewing with someone isn't bad. It's a very interesting insight to film. You can get like a lot of stuff, but I, I, it, I don't know. Maybe it feels weird over Zoom. I don't know. And there's, there's the thing of not every uh filmmaker is gonna be I, I'd imagine that they when they pick the people who are gonna be, you know, doing Q and A's or whatever, they pick people who they know are uh have a certain amount of kind of stage presence and can and can bring an energy to those proceedings. But there is you know, th- there are gonna be filmmakers out there who are very interesting, very compelling filmmakers who do not want to get up on a stage and talk about their work like that's their worst nightmare and, and also so, there's there quite a big leaning for international films as well so i wonder if there were some sort of you know language issues. barrier issues and things like mm. that where yeah or even I mean, time zone issues for certain people mm. yeah and so it, it is always a roll of a dice of like how much you're going to get out of a q a session versus how much you like you say you're going to get out of just seeing another film um yeah uh i think i i didn't see as many as i wanted to i had a very ambitious schedule um and then me too. Uh, yeah. Basically kind of only, only ended up seeing um you know about half a dozen um due to various uh things but um I I really enjoyed it and it and it's it's been an opportunity to see I don't think anything that I saw would have been films that I would have sought out naturally. Interesting. Yeah. Um yeah. and so just that uh, and I think kind of um, when I was trying to pick my highlight earlier, it, there there was a real kind of uh, 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 attention in my brain of like, well, this was probably the thing that I enjoyed the most. But then again, certain things I enjoyed just because they are so different to what I would normally see. Mm. Um, and so which kind of elevates them a little bit in in my mind because, you know, they they were well made and everything, but they're also so yeah. Different to the kind Spoiler alert, of... that's one of the reasons I picked my highlight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Weirdly enough, this isn't my first involvement with the BFI London Film Festival. Um, You're the in... history, Matthew. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. Go on a record. Matt once stole a print of the King's Speech. <laughs> I once stole the B from BFI. <laughs> <laughs> the B from B movie. <laughs> no, I think it was uh, late 2018. Um, must have been obviously it's usually about an October sort of time the festival runs. Um and a friend of mine um is a BAFTA member and he I well I was in London at the time and he said, We've got a screening because uh you know BFI's on. 
did you want to sit in? I was like, yes, please. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I went down to BAFTA headquarters and it was for Colette, the Wash Westmoreland film uh, with Kira Knightley and Dominic West and stuff. And again, it's, I said, this is, this is obviously premiering at the BFI, the London Film Festival. I said, yeah, but they, make, they do screenings for the BAFTA members as well. You're like, oh, so like, for example, what you would have normally, like, oh, you have a Kira Knightley and Dominic West and Washburn Smallland are going to be on stage talking about the movie. They also have to be in London anyway. So they've screened the film again for the BAFTA members because then that ranges from all kinds of different, you know, that's video games, that's film, that's TV uh, for, for international listeners, it's the British Academy of Film and Television Arts and that sort of stuff. But the point is, um, I went along and because it's a very small audience, you do have the thing of like, okay, um, we're just going to send a microphone around if anyone has any questions. Fwomp, and goes straight up. <laughs> it's like, hello. I'm not supposed to be here, but I have some questions. <laughs> um, and you know me, I, I was like, you have one question. Cool. Here's my three questions. Um, <laughs> I have one question, but it's a three-parter. <laughs> yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into a, a, a conversational point now. But um, no, th so there's lots of those sorts of things. You have like the, the South Bank, for example, and all kinds of different things that you... You'd bounce around to, and you'd have you know additional screenings and things, um, and I miss on I miss that for example I miss that, and I never so I'm very socially anxious and I'm very much an introvert so I don't like that kind of experience normally, but when it's film and I've just seen like two hours of something that's really moved me, I want to fucking talk about it I do want to <laughs> talk about it um, this is one of the kind of things I liked about doing our little diary things because I would record them almost immediately after I'd seen a a, a, a bundle as it were and obviously write my reviews and things. Um, and again, they, the BFI were very clear on what you could and couldn't do, which was very, very good. I did like that. I genuinely appreciated that. Um, obviously, don't steal this film. <laughs> Every film started <laughs> yeah. with a little announcement. So, so something some people might know about screeners or uh, you know press screenings and whatever, and even versions like you said that are sent out to. The common thing is sent out to Academy members, so the people yes. who vote on the Oscars and all that sort of stuff will be sent out digital copies or DVDs or you know tapes and all that kind of stuff back in the for day. For your consideration stuff. And yeah, for your consideration stuff, exactly, would have the person's name like watermarked all over it. And yeah. the same was this case as well. We had sequelizers along the side of our player the mm. whole time, so they can tell if you're screenshotting stuff or downloading stuff. You have a unique login and you can see who's doing what and who's screenshotting what and all that kind of stuff as mm -hmm. well. So, yeah, they were definitely keeping track of that as well, I think. Yeah. And on top of that, if you were going into something that was embargoed, it would mm. be a case that yes. it would say, you cannot share your opinions on social media, including Twitter and Facebook. They're very clear about that. So mm. I'm not going to say, don't publish stuff. It's like, oh, you mean don't publish a review fully? No, 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 no. Don't give any impressions online whatsoever. They specifically mentioned, yeah, no impressions, no mentioning it on social media until it has been screened for the public, which is a fairly common thing for screeners and things like that. Um, most things, whether that's... I, I know it mostly from vid the video game industry. That's a very, very common thing for review embargoes to happen. So developers will send out a game ahead of time, but until the day of public release, you can't say anything, or a week before public release, depending on how confident the developer is <laughs> on how good the game is, essentially. Yes. Uh, and you get that in, in this industry as well, whether that's you seeing a screening beforehand and then you release it, like I said, a week before public release, or the deck is released in your country or whatever it is. And only certain films where there's only a handful out of the, mm. what must be like 30 or 40 films that were available, I think about five or six were a, six or seven were embargoed 
and some of them were embargoed for the same day. One will will Matt and I will talk about later on was like it was shown at 10 a.m. and the embargo was 8 p.m. the same day. So it's like <laughs> ah, that's fine. I can record it now and then schedule it for latest. That's fine. But uh, yeah, an embargo. That that's what we mean by an embargo. So, yes. Yeah. Which is very weird for a normal average viewer as an audience because you're never told. Did you enjoy that film? I did. Don't tell anyone <laughs> anything about it for 24 hours. It's like. What do you mean? Don't post about it on Facebook. Oh, I don't know. Am don't I allowed to do that? Tell my family and friends. No, no. Did we ask what you saw? You tell them you saw nothing. <laughs> I think we were we were quite lucky because uh, the Toronto International Film Festival happened about a m- month uh, before uh, this one, mm. and there, I think there was quite a bit of crossover in terms of things that got screened there and got screened here. So they had past embargo because that you know they'd had their world premiere there and then they were having their kind of uk premiere here um which meant that obviously there'd already been coverage about uh a fair few of them so uh i think yes on a in a if the cycle had been slightly different we may have been uh even more reticent to share our opinions but fortunately uh that wasn't the case so we had a bit of crossover between us we saw a variety of films so unsurprisingly as tim kind of mentioned earlier Matt saw the most films. <laughs> yep. I think Matt Matt saw more than me and Tim put together. Because I saw half of what was going. That's that's pretty impressive. Mm. I think Tim and I saw sort of like single digits, whereas you thoroughly got into double digits. Stockton <laughs> and and to to be fair to me and Tim, Matt did book week days off of work to do this. Like yes, he, yes. he really got stuck in and, and dedicated his time and effort to it. So. Well done for first of all for doing that, Matt, for being able to <laughs> record all of your reactions and write up reviews and watch three or four films in one day and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, we did have a few crossovers. I was wondering because when, as Tim said, we built fairly ambitious schedules. I wondered where we would start dropping off or where we would start seeing crossovers there. And I want to start off with one of the first films I saw, and I know it was one of the first films Tim saw as well, hmm. which is a documentary called Stray. And it's a very, very interesting, unique documentary, unlike probably anything I've ever seen before, about a... I'm going to keep this very vague as we can go into more details in a second, but essentially it's a it's a dog's eye view of the city of Istanbul across... What would you, what would you say to him? A couple of nights? It's a, it's a yeah. fairly short... It's kind of purposefully vague in the sort of span of time, I think, but... Yeah, it, it felt like it was within maybe two or three days, but that yeah, could have been... Yeah, that was been, the impression I got as well. You know, that could have been clever editing. Um, it, it's not... Yeah, uh, you wonder if they shot for five weeks and edited it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I like I said in my, in my initial review uh, post, like, I would be fascinated to see how they managed to film this because the, the stray dog, uh, multiple stray dogs that are involved, never seem particularly to kind of pay attention to the camera um, or yeah, to the person like who was holding it. that fascinated me as well. Like, not only... So, Zetin, the, the main dog, the star of the show, essentially, wasn't really, like... Didn't seem to be aware of the camera, despite the camera is literally, like, over her shoulder at times. Mm. Literally, like, inches from her left or right ear, basically showing her perspective. And she's just trundled along as normal. Like, did the... I don't know, did the cinematographers get like really comfortable with her or something like that and build that relationship beforehand or they just very sneaky or she's just chill yeah and let let them do that it was it, yeah i'd be really interested to see some behind the scenes stuff and see how they actually did it 
imagine again I, th- this is a little spoiler for you everybody i don't think there was a single film that all three of us saw which is very weird um but uh, yeah so, you're correct yeah, yeah. Uh, so i didn't see stray but i imagine if i was to presume as a filmmaker because i must admit i'm not a documentary filmmaker anyway so i've done i've done you know shall we say non-fictional stuff um non-linear narratives and it's a very different type of filmmaking um and the amount of footage you have to gather to squeeze out anything and i mean i mean if you watch like a nature <laughs> documentary david attenborough is commenting on like life on planet earth isn't very good right now <laughs> um <laughs> and my new series quote yeah my new series fuck we're all screwed um, we're all fucked that kind of show they usually have like a year of people out in the field several teams filming just oh, yeah. in case they come across yeah. them um, yeah. guys sat in a like a, a bunch of trees in a rainforest for six months and they're like oh that bird that nobody's ever seen in the wild just flew for the first time on <laughs> camera i've been here for 26 weeks fucking hell <laughs> nailed it <laughs> but they have the but they the, the the difference i think in that is that they have the budget for that kind of stuff that's big production that's bbc that's netflix that's all that kind of stuff whereas this is um a very very small production from what i understood basically the director elizabeth Lowe essentially shot herself kind of thing did most of it yeah yeah did a lot of the shooting herself working with um a couple of other cinematographers and, and cameramen and cameramen and women as well but in general, it, it's not your big budget nature documentary stuff. And it is very grounded and literally down to earth. Like I said, it's often eye line level with the dogs going around the city. And it gives you a really unique perspective. I don't know much about Istanbul in general. I've never been to Turkey or Istanbul. But seeing a city from a dog dog's perspective and seeing how... You know, the dogs are treated and then it kind of spans into you. You meet a few Syrian refugees who you kind of equate with their journey and their experience in the streets of Istanbul and all that kind of stuff. It's it's an interesting way of looking and a really unique take on just, just landscapes and shots and cinematography that I haven't really seen before. Yeah, I mean, I think I think to kind of answer our own question about how they got the shots, I think it is the dogs there are just so used to people being around because there's there's it, it, a little bit of kind of an intro at the start of the film. They mentioned that there was a, a law in Istanbul that back in the, I think it was said in the sort of 1920s, there were these, they had a big problem with stray dogs and they did lots of cults of them, unfortunately. And then there was a lot of public outcry. And so, so now you are not allowed to restrict or kill a dog, a stray dog in Istanbul. And so there's just loads of them that just are kind of in these, not necessarily roving packs, but like these kind of weird little small communities of like, you know, it's it feels that it's a weird, almost like a, a kind of child's book kind of uh, utopia for dogs where it's like, oh, yes, he goes every Tuesday. He goes to this baker because he knows that they're making their, you know, baklava on that night and we'll give him a few spare ones. And it's like, there's almost this kind of uh, Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy kind of existence to these dogs where they they aren't owned by anyone but they are known to a lot of people and it but it's a very kind of you know it it's night watchmen on on construction sites and it's refugees who are you know uh, homeless at the time and stuff like that and so it's this it it had this kind of weird 
a slight kind of magicalness to it, um, but also a very grounded in realism of just you seeing a lot of the people around who are dealing with very tough times. It sounds to me like if you were to interview the the creators and say, was this a direct parallel? Were you trying to make a, a, a sort of almost a juxtaposition between the life of, let's say, let's say like, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis, where the West in general has said, it is wrong. This war is wrong. It is wrong. These people are being killed. Are you going to actively help? No. What do you mean? I'm not going to help. In the same way, it's like, it is wrong to kill these dogs. Are you going to actually, you know, house them and home them and spay them and take care of them? No, they're just going to roam around. They'll be fine. Mm. It's, and I'm not, I'm not making a direct comparison myself to stray dogs and refugees, mm. but I think that sounds like the kind of parallel the film might have been drawing by the sounds of it. In the that sense was of- very, yeah, that was very much the impression I got. And I know you touched upon this in your review, Tim, mm. of... Like that's a fairly problematic take if you take it in a certain direction. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, th- from what I've read of the, you know, the, like I said, the director and her intentions and things like that, I believe they were positive intentions of giving you a unique perspective of the experience of people and animals on the streets of Istanbul. Okay, like, well, that makes it, sense. It's though. it's not a you know, refugees are strays kind of direct. It's not dehumanizing, it's yeah. Human lives are animal, yeah, dehumanizing yeah. them and comparing th- them directly I, to animals. I, I think that's the thing, is that it's not because yeah, like I said, I touched on this of like, mm, you could get into iffy territory there, but rather than dehumanizing the refugees, it's almost like it's anthropomorphizing the dogs. Yeah. Um and kind I of agree. say and and it, I think it does draw parallels there, but mm. um and I think but I think that's it's drawing those to kind of say, like, hey, we've just kind of we've let these people in, but then we've abandoned them, and like, yes, yes, you know, we we need to do better. Um, Which is fair. It's good. It's a good message. It's a good story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, when I, as I mentioned earlier, like this was almost one that I put down as my highlight because it's so not the kind of thing that I would ever think of going to the cinema or particularly like loading up on Netflix to watch. Um, yeah. But it was it was a really, I think the closing moments of the films where they have the kind of the Islamic call to prayer, um, and it's kind of very early in the morning, and you're just kind of following this, this dog along. Uh, I think it's along a river bank at that point. Yeah. And it's, it's just a, it's beautifully kind of shot. Um, you know, for, for, we talked about you know the difficulties of of how it must have been you know, and even if you're shooting loads and loads of footage your focus is the dog and so you have very little control over like what's <laughs> going to be happening at any time and and to yeah. get those that that beautiful moment um i think was was very well done yeah um right at the very end zatine starts to kind of like harmonize with the islamic prayer mm. call she starts howling along with it and like matches the notes of it it's really really brilliantly mm. done mm. and how they do the little call and response um, my main problem with it, and to kind of wrap up my thoughts on it, I felt like it didn't have enough of a structure to to pull me through, and I felt like it needed a bit more of a clear kind of conclusion. It was it was very much a here is whatever time span, forty eight hours, seventy two hours in the life of this dog in Istanbul. Full stop. Mm-hmm. 
and some interesting stuff might happen, some might not happen. That's your lot. And and there was not really any kind of like it didn't end with her being taken in by a family or her dying tragically or anything like that. Mm. And obviously I wouldn't wish for that kind of stuff, but it did kind of left me feeling like, okay, is that is that a special day? Is that an interesting day? Is that <laughs> is this just like you said, is this just this happens every day and Syrian refugees come through and go by and you see couples arguing in restaurants and all this kind of stuff and somebody tries to mistakenly adopt a puppy, which also happens. But it was just kind of like, yeah, okay, cool. This is it, it didn't have a clear sort of like I think the lack of a timeline and a structure kind of knocked it down a little bit for me. But overall I think it was beautifully shot and well acted is a weird thing yeah. to say, but it was really well captured and, and mm. the the uh yeah, the, the interactions between the, the different people and the dogs and stuff like that worked really, really well. Yeah, I think it it's um it did reject any kind of real narrative to it. There 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 is no through line beyond just oh, sometimes the dog hangs out with these people and you see them and then the dog wanders off and then a little while later, the dog is back with those people. But there's yeah, no exactly. there's no real story to it. And I think I think it's, you know, it's one of those uh, uh, a tone poem kind of uh, pieces where it's just like, you're just kind of going to watch for, you know, 100 minutes and let the atmosphere kind of wash over you, um, which you you have to be in the right frame of mind for i think because yeah a lot of the time you know you do you want something to kind of guide you through and give you a little bit more structure which this really didn't have because it was it was literally just following the dog around um yeah uh so yeah i i think that's that's uh a, a worthwhile critique but i think done very intentionally by by the filmmakers I think that's a point worth noting very quickly, though. I did touch on this in, in, in one of my breakdowns, that because you don't necessarily know what to expect with these movies, you do get a lot of tonal whiplash, and you don't have a lot of time to process what you're going to see. Mm. So, for example, you're watching a film set in Istanbul about literally a stray dog going around, shot in a very strange, discombobulated way, leaving you a bit disorientated, at nine in the fucking morning. Yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, yeah. And then if you, you know, uh, it, according to the schedule, straight after that was a, a, Czech, uh, a Czech film from the Czech Republic about a historical drama sort of thing. It's like, you, you don't always have time to, pr- if, you're, if you're like, you know, binging a lot of stuff, you don't necessarily have time to go over everything. Yeah, and just there, were, really there was react. certainly some, some tonal whiplash, to say yeah. the least. I, I, I think that's the... the... You know, and people will say like, "Oh, you know, sort of, how, how can watch just spending a day watching films be hard?" I think that's like everything that you're watching here is pretty serious. There's very, there's very few like light and frothy stuff, and and even if there was, you're deliberately you're putting yourself, you're sitting and you're very focused on what you're watching, um, yes. and I think that is the it's there's a mental toll to okay, like I'm going to watch this thing that's going to be, have a very specific tone and then I'm going to watch this other thing that's quite harrowing and then I'm going to have to... Then I've got five minutes to eat lunch and then I'm going to, going to start watching this other thing that's also harrowing <laughs> in a completely different way. Yes. Um, that That is where the... 
the the toil of, of a film festival comes from. Yeah, I mean, you're entirely correct. Whenever someone says like, if I talk about like reviewing films, and I've been doing it since like 2004 or something, people will say, "Oh wow, that's so cool!" It's like, yeah, it's cool to you because, and I should clarify, it's cool to me too. Really, I love <laughs> I love reviewing films. Um, it's my element, but um. It's cool for you because you watch your favorite films over and over again, or you see like a couple of blockbusters a year or whatever, or you seek out the things you want to watch. If you watch everything that's on at the cinema, you go a little bit crazy. Um, <laughs> and as Tim's pointed out, there is a very specific tone to this festival because everything is of very high quality. There's, there's nothing that's bad. The things you might not necessarily like or not get on with too much, but everything is really well made and everything is really good. Um, and there are a few things that are, oh, I'll get to this later. There's, there's like, oh, it's an animated movie. Brilliant. Bit of a bit of a break there. Oh no, my insides. Oh <laughs> no, I wasn't ready. Oh, a documentary. Okay, it'll take me away from this, this uh, drama about a gay couple, one of who's got Alzheimer's. Oh no, it's about autism and it's really hard. Oh my God, I can't, I can't process it. And that's kind of the thing. Some people, because of this, become very desensitized. Some critics will become so clinical in just saying, yeah, no, it's structurally sound, it's good. Did you feel anything? I don't feel anything anymore. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I can't feel anything. It's been 18 years since a film has made me have an emotion. Yeah, and that emotion was rage. Are you quoting me again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, even, even a film that could be construed as a comedy, which was like Cajillionaire, it's not what you would call a light fucking comedy, mm. um, as police would think. Uh, people would assume it, and um, even then, you know, it's like, oh, okay, what, what's what's next on the docket? Uh, a story about uh, police brutality and a man who's been in prison for several years for a crime he didn't commit. Fucking great, <laughs> and I, but I will give it all the time it needs because, of course, it's a very important story, and that's the thing you always go, "This is important. Someone's made this," and so on. Mm. What's what's the next crossover? It's the one between you two. Oh. <laughs> so Matt, why don't you uh Tim and I have already talked about Stray, why don't you take it away when you and Tim both saw, as you mentioned, a documentary, One Man and His Shoes. It's an interesting one because there was a very uh clear difference between Tim and myself on this one. Not because we did or didn't like it in that regard, but because of the information going into it. Neither Tim or myself give too many shits about basketball. Tim's that is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I would say that is that is a fair verdict. What? Tim I and can't I... believe it, you you two <laughs> incredibly white boys. Tim and I, however, do like Space Jam. <laughs> 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 um, no, uh, I I have seen the Netflix documentary The Last Dance, which is about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan specifically on his run of this immense season. It's very interesting and really well done, etc. Tim is aware of it, but had not seen it, and I believe still has not seen it. Is that correct? Still not. No, it is, yeah. uh, it's, it is officially added to my Netflix queue now. But, it's, you know, yeah, it's good. There's a lot of stuff on there. That's the thing as well. The, the Obviously, you know, juggling your own stuff in addition to, you know, London Film Festival things. But this is a one single, one and a half hour documentary as opposed to, I think, the eight or ten parts that was made up of The Last Dance, for example. Mm. So there's so much more content and personal interviews from those involved that. One Man in His Shoes felt a little, a little hollow for me in that regard. But it wasn't about the man. It wasn't about that. It was about the shoe and the company and the impact and the importance and how people get obsessed over consumerism and envy and all that shit. Um, and I still think it was very, very well made and still very enjoyable. Um, and again, it's like, you know, you're looking through the rundown of a list 
And on this particular day, let me try and think when this was exactly. So this particular day was like Tuesday the 13th of October. And I'd seen a, a Mads Mikkelsen Danish drama. I'd seen a, a UK vampire sort of horror story. And then I watched a documentary about Air Jordans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you think to yourself, this will be a nice tonal break. But by the end of it, it's about people being killed for shoes. And you're like, fuck. Yeah. You got me again, you bastards. I'm feeling again. Um, but yeah, Tim, what, what were your general reactions to the whole thing and how it was presented? Yeah, I, I really liked this. Um, I, I, I am someone who does not particularly care about sports, but I do enjoy sports films and sports documentaries uh, mm. because mm. of, and this is weird, it goes back to Stray, uh, sports don't necessarily have a narrative. Um, you know, you can have the plucky underdog team in real life who managed to make it to the final and then they just get beaten by the team that, you know, has a lot more money and is, you know, being consistently good. Um, and and that can feel like a complete betrayal to someone who thinks about narrative structure more than they think about sports. Um, uh, and so I enjoy things that uh, take sports and are able to kind of find that narrative within it. Um, and this is obviously is kind of about sports but really it's about culture and consumerism um and how they play into sport um which is a, a really interesting area um and i i found it fascinating like as someone who kind of wasn't plugged into this culture you know it was it was happening around the time uh when i was you know a kid um and i was aware of it via space jam of like oh yeah michael jordan's like a very famous basketball player and had that cartoon where it's him and uh wayne gretzky and then a american football player and they they've got gadgets and they're spies that was awesome <laughs> um uh but uh to to get sort of a glimpse into how how much of a seismic shift uh even just the promotion of this shoe was in how it differed to everything else that had come before was was really fascinating. Um, and I thought it was a very well put together documentary. I think it it does. Uh, it's interesting. You kind of use the word hollow, and it it does have that space at the center where it's like they didn't get anyone to uh, from Nike to talk about the shoes, and they didn't get Michael Jordan to talk about them. Um, and so there is that interesting kind of absence. Uh, at the middle of it of like you know you, you've got a lot of people who don't work for Nike anymore talking about it and you know people who are kind of aware of, of of you know how things played out but it would be fascinating to get his actual thoughts on it um and it's kind of a shame that they they weren't able to get that but then I do wonder if they had got that, you know, there's often strings attached to get people involved in stuff and they may not have been able to touch on the killings, which have happened, uh, um, which it kind of switches to um, in the kind of back third. Yeah, it might have been more sycophantic. Suddenly you think, oh, I don't want to push this too hard. Um, okay, maybe we'll do a bit of a softer light. And this can happen almost subconsciously. You're not intentionally trying to, you know, sully mm. your idea. Or you could have gone too hard on it and tried to make it a, you know, cutting expose. I'm going to catch them out. I'm going to get that hmm. Ross Nixon style moment. And you're like, and then it comes across too dogged, for example. I, I would agree with you. I think it's really 
it's it's well constructed and and this is the key point here anything that can draw you in on something you don't necessarily give a shit about and for an hour and a half you're genuinely committed to go not like background style like oh no i might put it on the background while i'm reading or doing something mm. or cooking or something whatever but to be focused to it and saying this is very interesting and even though it's something like I mean, again it sounds stupid basketball i'm lightly aware of it's interesting enough but i don't think i'd ever watch a basketball game I don't wear trainers at all. <laughs> I have. I, it's like, oh, the the you know, Converse was the, was the sports shoe until this one. They couldn't have this particular shoe because it was black, red, and white, and they refused to have that coming. You can't have that on the court, and they kicked it off and things. You know, Spike Lee's involvement with making the commercials was very interesting for me as a filmmaking point of view and a bit of you know, almost cultural ephemera in a sort of strange way. But in terms of like somebody who is never going to go fuck. I need to get some of these shoes because <laughs> I I didn't. But then the the film wasn't an advert. It's not trying to make you buy Air Jordans. It's trying to highlight some interesting parts of the history and the fallout of something of this cultural impact and importance. Mm. The idea that Michael Jordan sold a lifestyle, and yes, he is not entirely responsible for the impact of that. You know, just because you're wearing a you know a, a, an expensive watch or a coat or something, and someone mugs you for it. Is it the responsibility of the person who makes that thing because they shouldn't be making things that people, other people envy? And it's like, well, no, but you do also have a societal responsibility to stand up and speak out against this sort mm. of thing. That might not stop it at all, but to have almost no stance, you know, that, that silent mm. complicitness is almost part of the problem. And when you're marketing them also on their rarity. And the fact that, oh, you know, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, these are all the mm. limited run, you know, you know, if you don't get them on the day. If you if you're not the person who is queuing up at you know the night before to get these Air Jordans, you're not going to get them new. So the only way to get them is to steal them off of someone, you know. And, exactly. And, yeah, it, it it was like genuinely something that I had not really thought about, and I and I came out of the film quietly fascinated. Um, it kind of it it felt very much like the way that a good kind of popular science podcast or something Ooh. can be you know one something from like npr or you know 99 invisible where you're like wow i've never thought about this and there's there's a whole world to it with so many different factors weighing in um you know the kind of sports culture and money and you know african-american identity and, and all these things kind of playing within this very uh single space embodied in this single item you know mm. And that's what I kind of... Okay, this is what I love about film festivals personally. It's why we sort of found out that we were like, you know, eligible. It's like, you, we should definitely try for this and would like to do more of it in future if, if the opportunity becomes available. Because at the end of the day, I think they're very interesting. And the frustration I have with festivals, as I mentioned, that, that exclusionary mindset, that exclusivity, um, I feel like more people, and I don't want to use the word forced, <laughs> I think more people should be expected to go see these things. Mm. for free and, and i know it sounds like a stupid thing so like, no we're trying to sell a product here we're trying to sell ideas we're trying to sell it to people to market it so they then go and buy the tickets we want the filmmakers to make money like yes 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 but on a high level yes okay there are a lot of people in an industry to make money but these kind of films are films where they want to tell a story or get a message across at almost every single one of them and that's kind of the point. You want that exposure. You want that to be a thing that people see. It's like, oh no, it's not for me. 
like, like, let's face it, most of you listening right now, all the films we're going to name, or the films we've gone through in our little overviews, all the things I've reviewed, first off, you may never have heard of any of them. And secondly, you may still go, eh, I might check it out. I probably won't. That's the damn shame. It's when you're forced that you have to go watch it. You have to get an opinion on it. You have to sit down. And as Tim says, you just walk out and go, yeah, I'm just going to process this for a while. That's a really <laughs> nice experience for me. Yeah. And the, and the other the other unfortunate thing is that the accessibility, you know, these are not, most of these are not films that Netflix is going to be like doing a big splash page on when it goes no, on Netflix, no. if it goes on Netflix, you know. A lot of these are, you're going to have, they are the kind of films that uh, if you take the time to watch them, they're really rewarding. But the way that they are marketed and distributed means that the only way you're going to see them is if you really seek them out. Um, and that that is very unfortunate. Whereas, you know, fucking, you can try and avoid something like Transformers and accidentally end up watching it. Um, <laughs> and that is not at all a rewarding experience. Yeah. I think um, the one that comes to mind to me uh, was the... Because it is, it, it, there's lots of new stuff, and I should point out this was saying that we, this is very interesting about festivals. There's done stuff like it's coming out in January next year. It's coming out in October next year. There may be a limited release, you know, wherever as a premiere. But you, the public, don't get to see this until March. You're like, oh shit, that's a bit of, that's a bit interesting. I get ahead ahead of the the conversation, as it were. But then also they'll have things which have been restored. So for example, on the Friday, the the ninth of October, um, I watched a film called The Cheaters, which is a 1930s Australian movie, shot in 1929, but you know what I mean. And it's been restored, really lovingly restored. If you if you go search it, um, Cheaters is in C-H-E-A-T-E-R-S, not Cheaters is in the Fast Cat or the Thundercat. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been restored really well. There's like a, a trailer they've done, and it's got this sort of side-by-side -side comparison of this literally like faded film and they've rebuilt it as it were that kind of film preservation is like we've rebuilt this and we're showing it to you now for the first time in nearly a hundred years and it's quite cool to to, to be part of that you know to re-release films that you might not have had available before especially considering this film in particular there's a built as a, as a cross dissolve i know i'm digressing here but there's a cross dissolve these two sort of central support struts for a bridge you know oh yeah and then it cross-dissolves and the bridge is finished. And it's like, oh, obviously they were building at the time. And they decided to get a shot before and after it was done. And then you suddenly go, oh shit, that's Sydney. That's, <laughs> that's the iconic Sydney Harbour Bridge, as it were. Because obviously from our generational thing, Sydney Harbour is accompanied by the Sydney Opera House. With its, mm. you know... Yeah, of course. Yeah, packet it's... of Pringles that's fallen on the floor. So <laughs> <to> it, <whatever. laughs> but um, to not see it there, just to see the bridge being scrapped, it's like, that's... You've not only made this for your movie, but you filmed history. And it's the same mm. way that you go back and watch a film from the 80s and there's a Twin Towers and you go, oh, shit. It's one of those sort of moments you think, it, it, the gut punch of like, oh, this is different. Um, at case in point, actually, in just to, to draw us full circle, in One Man in His Shoes, I'm pretty sure there's a few, you know, scenes of the Chicago skyline and then a couple of shots of like the New York skyline with the Twin Towers and, and things like that. It's just because just it's, you know, it's a big city at the time and you just had that moment drawing you back because of the history that's been recorded through documentaries at the time and things um but yes i i love festivals let's go on to the next film <laughs> well funnily enough this is a film that won 
best film of the festival. It did. <laughs> and uh, I can see why. And we'll we'll get into that in a moment. Because I think Matt and I uh, both enjoyed it. But, yes. Uh, yeah. It is known in English as Another Round, but also has a Danish name since it is a Danish film of Druk, which from what I understand means drink. Or like <laughs> cheers, basically, in Danish. Yeah. And it probably caught has caught the attention of people within the festival and outside of the festival because it's a Danish film starring everybody's favourite Dane, Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> I think it was it was definitely one of the more high profile ones. On Very much so, yeah. 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 It was it was it was, I think, just about the only one I'd heard of before going into the film festival, if that mm. makes sense. Ninety nine percent I think I, I knew about one Tim and I will talk about later on I'd heard existed but didn't know it was at the festival mm. until I was watching it basically. <laughs> um but this one was one I'd had already heard of. I was like, oh Matt Mickelson's done something. That's cool. Oh, it's at the film festival. Perfect. I have an excuse to watch it now. Excellent. And yeah, it's basically the story of four middle aged men coming like reuniting together again and trying to relive their youth in certain ways and basically deals with their relationship with alcohol in, in, in different aspects. And they go with, I can't remember the name of the philosopher specifically, but they come up with a oh, skull, uh, something. It's in my review. I'm going to find it. You carry on. Oh, good. And they basically go through this theory, which I like to call the Mitchell and Webb sketch theory. <laughs> that is about a pint and a bit or a glass and a bit of wine is peak human performance. Yeah. <laughs> I watched, I rewatched that uh, sketch the other day, actually, completely oh, it's coincidentally. The it's the best. When, when I was watching this film, I was like, oh, they're, they're doing that Mitchell and Webb sketch, the film, <laughs> <laughs> but Danish. <laughs> and like, you know, Oscar worthy and stuff like that. Uh, but they basically have this, uh, if they have a theory that if you have 0.05% blood alcohol concentrate, then you are, you know, your inhibitions are loosened and you're more confident and you're more engaging and more engaged in your life and everything. And that is like, that is how God intended man to be, essentially. <laughs> God made man in his image just b but forgot a pint and a half of beer <laughs> in the process. I, I think I've heard a Tommy Tiernan line and a, and a Humphrey Bogart line, the same sort of principle. It's like, you know, there's one thing missing here. Um, Bin uh, Skadrud or something like that, Skadrud. Hey, hey, Scandinavian listeners, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. We have some Danish-speaking listeners, so let's yeah, know. I'm sure they'll love to tell me that I got that wrong. <laughs> I don't care. The point is that um, I'm actually quite surprised this one best film. Um, I really enjoy it. I think it's a fantastic film. I like Thomas Vinterberg's stuff. And it, it's always shitty to say, it's really good. It's not yeah. as good as his best film, though, is it? And it's like, well... <laughs> No, because the hunt is fucking spectacular. That was um, the thing. I so I went into this being like, God, when was the last time I saw a Danish film? <laughs> I can't even remember the like the I'm sure I've seen a couple though. It's like I really like that. There was that other one with Mans Mickelson a few years ago. What was what's that called? Like the the something, the the hunt, right? That was it. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of looked that up and I was like, Vinterberg, Vinterberg, why does that ring a bell? Oh fuck! It's the same guy. <laughs> it's like half of the same cast, the same director. Like, oh right, okay, because um, uh, Mickelson and Larson are both starring in both films, mm -hmm. and Vinterberg is writing and directing. So it's like, oh, 
that explains a lot then. Yeah. Because <laughs> the hunt, as you said, Matt, is a fucking amazing masterpiece of a film. It's a good Christmas and movie. Yeah, <laughs> sure. In that it's set at Christmas and it's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> and harrowing and depressing, but yeah. Fucking in, the, in the same way Lady Macbeth is a feel-good movie. Hey, Yeah, exactly. I stand by going, my statement. Going back to your feel-good movies. <laughs> but another round, I think, takes a, a, a mostly light-hearted tone, but it does have a few instances where there are twists and turns. And I think... I think a lot of films would really struggle to keep that going and keep the the kind of yo-yo pace of like, hey, they're all funny and drunk and then something bad happens and then they're all funny and drunk and something bad happens. Mm. But somehow, some way, the central performances of the four of them, the direction, the dialogue, the and even like their you know, their partners and the and the kind of tertiary mm. cast and secondary cast members and stuff like that, it all just gelled so perfectly and so believably for me that I totally believed in these characters and all these, you know, I I know Mads Mikkelsen's a weird eccentric dude and I've seen him in everything (laughs) from Hannibal to Death Stranding to Valhalla Rising to everything (laughs) in between. (laughs) But he's just a bloke in this. And I was like, this is so weird seeing Mads Mikkelsen as just a a normal bloke. <laughs> he's a he's a dad and a rubbish husband and a, and an okay teacher. And like, oh my god, this is so strange. Um, and yeah, I think it did an amazing job of kind of balancing and, and not having the tonal whiplash we've mentioned a few times on this show before, where you go from this film can't make up its mind. Is it funny? Is it this? Is it not? And it does a brilliant job of kind of almost like a roller coaster ride of like oh you're coming up to the top of the hill and then you come crashing down and then you go around the corner and you go up another hill and then you come crashing down again i think it did that really really well and you to kind of contrast the what i mentioned about straight you get a clear kind of narrative and then that narrative structure then goes out the window once they get spoiler alert they start getting more and more drunk. They go from 0.05 <laughs> to like 0.1. And there's a there's a brilliant moment. Um, Mads Mikkelsen's character has the like dead poet society. Like all the all the students are clapping and cheering like, hmm. yeah, sir, you're the best. And one of the other guys comes up to him in the hallway. He's like, how much have you had to drink? He's like, uh, I'm, I'm at 0.1. He was like, oh, it's true. We must go. We must go further. Fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And he just runs off. Gets pissed. <laughs> just starts necking all over. He finds like hidden vodka bottles and he's yeah. been like hiding them under his desk and then like in the gym equipment and all this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, as you can imagine, it kind of gets out of control and they get drunker and drunker. And that, as you can imagine from, you know, how that works of them having jobs and families and all that kind of stuff, it does kind of. Spin out of control for a few of them in in various different ways. I I am I I'm slightly disappointed I didn't get to see this one because people acting believably drunk is actually incredibly hard, and I would yep, be interested yeah. to see uh, how they pulled it off. No, knowing Vinterberg, I guess they were probably mostly just a little bit pissed. That <laughs> that was my guess. I, when I was watching it, I was like, "This is really fucking believable." Are they just drunk? Because <laughs> you see them drinking a lot, and I know obviously you can just put water in, it looks yeah. like vodka and whatever, but like it is pretty fucking believable. And there's a moment where like they they go to a 
liquor store is yeah. the equivalent of a liquor the the off license here in the uk mm. and they're just falling over and knocking <laughs> bottles off shelves and stuff and like okay that's the kind of hollywood drunk i'm kind of used to mm-hmm. but it's not played for slapstick comedy you see it as kind of like oh this is kind of sad now yeah this is a bunch of blokes in their 40s and 50s and they're just kind of the security guard is like, oh, you're pathetic. Get out of my fucking shop and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And take that for like something like, I don't know, super bad or something like that. Which <laughs> all these wacky teens getting drunk and then they fall over and I'll oh, get old McLovin. Ha, ha, ha. And complained the complete opposite of this. You're like, it very quickly goes from, oh, that's funny. They're falling over. Oh, they're a bit too, that's a bit too old for doing this, aren't they? That's a bit, ooh, yeah, not great. Yeah, it, it, it goes from... The amusing, I'm trying to live my life, just let me do something for myself, to you are being selfish and pathetic right now. And and various characters tell them that to their oh, face. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they do, very much so. Uh, they try and hide it. And the classic thing about a drunk trying to hide anything, where they're stumbling around, you're not hiding shit. There's a, <laughs> and this is the thing. I genuinely think it might be one of Mads Mikkelsen's best performances because, as Jack said, he's just doing a normal person. And it's when he's like... I, I was thinking that. Yeah. 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 They're, they're saying, like, oh, so there might be some... Uh, Stuff going with some kids drinking in school. We saw found some bottles, and they're like, you know, shitting each other. Like, oh god, oh god, oh god! And also <laughs> slightly drunk. And then Mickelson walks in, and he's got that slightly confident swagger. He can be struggling with his bag a little bit, and then he's like, oh, <laughs> morning, yeah, hello. And he's like, okay, and he spin around, then doomf, straight into the door frame, and his nose starts bleeding, and he's like, oh, yeah. uh, come on, man, this 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 good, yeah, so just just yep, it's fine, it's fine, you okay? So, yeah, 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 yeah. How are you? The, the thing is, and this is this is why I marked it down to like a four out of five rather than, and why I'm still very surprised about the whole, you know, considering some of the stuff I saw, why it got best film. Um, it's brilliant. I enjoyed it. I think it had a real problem with what it was trying to say. I'm not saying anything about the ending. I'm not spoiling the film for you guys at all. But the film t- says a lot about alcohol in general and maturity and irresponsibility and selfishness. It says a lot about the idea of, I just want to feel alive. I, want, I don't want to be in this rut. It's like, you don't have to be. I think the drink will get me there. No, 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 it won't. It'll make you feel better, but you can't sustainably keep, I mean, this philosopher talks about this thing. You can't sustainably keep that up. Your body will literally shut the fuck down and you will become an alka-fucking-holic. You will become addicted to this. Um, and if you like, Try and go cold turkey. You can also have huge negative ramifications with you know for your liver and all that sort of thing. You can go into shock. There's all kinds of stuff. Without ruining anything, the film's general summation is ah drinking, and it's like right, hang on. We've had loads of huge developments here. Families have been all over the place. Everything's in turmoil. There's all kinds of madness and you know emotional highs, emotional lows. Tons of stuffs come out in the nowhere. And this is why my highlighted quote in my review is the highlighted quote that it is. I'm like, hmm, I kind of wish you didn't go down this road because it feels like it's almost glorifying everything. And this is where we disagree. Oh, because I think that's the point. And Ooh. I think the fact that alcohol is so ingrained in so many cultures, like a lot of, of course, people say, like the, the uniting things for so many cultures, religion and alcohol, that you want, you want to learn about a culture Learn, understand how they brew their alcohol and how they make their alcohol and how they drink it, and who they worship and what they worship, and you get the you get the you get the clearest idea of 
how how that culture works. And I think because I'm not calling out the Danes specifically, but like European culture in general is oh, yeah. very alcoholic driven, basically, like going out and partying and doing the whole kind of like lads nights out here in the UK that you go out to, you know, Magaluf or Lanzarote or whatever it is, or mm. Ibiza and you go off and do these crazy things and you get absolutely hammered. And there are elements like that, like you said, about the the scene at the end is kind of this big party thing, but it also has a somber note from what's happened earlier on in the film. Again, trying not to spoil too much because this will will get a release later this year, I believe. But I think that not not to kind of boil it down to like everything in moderation, meh, 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 <laughs> but I think that's the point of you, you need to understand what you're getting into. And sure, alcohol can be good and it can solve you know, it's rather than solve, it can heal you temporarily or in certain ways or ease the pain of things and all that kind of stuff. But you need to understand there are dangers and there are problems with that. And then, uh, as you, you'll be happy to find out, Tim, it ends with a dance number. Hey! Does, which they've been hinting at the whole film and they keep going, ah, go Why on, you're not dancing? Do, the, do the dance. He's like, ah, no, no, I'm not going to do the dance. And they finally do the dance at the end. It's and fucking it is, intense as well. It is kind of amazing. <laughs> and he's, but it's also it's, like, yeah, you get the impression, again, try not to spoil too much, you get the impression that that is a very cathartic moment as well as a ce- celebratory moment. Yes, mm. yes. And again, somehow it seems to balance those tones and those emotions in a way mm. that I think it's doing both at the same time. And it's saying alcohol is real fucking bad and you can misuse it and anyone is susceptible to this. So, you know, take it seriously. But also it can help you have a good time. So don't let alcohol control you in, in either way too much. And I know, uh, Matt, you, you yourself, I know you spoke about this on the show before, and I know you're reasonably comfortable talking about it, but of course, of course, of course. You're, you're sober yourself. Yes, and yes. I was sober for the first 22, 23 years of my life. <laughs> so like, first done... 16 years of my life, I was sober. <laughs> <laughs> I was sober until the grand old age of 14. <laughs> But you and I are kind of polar opposites in that That's sense. That's the thing. Where, That's the thing. Where I, I came to alcohol much later and you went earlier and and, mm. and left fairly quickly. My my experiences but, are largely negative. Yours are probably a, a mix of positive and negative and stuff like that. Yeah, and and yeah. that will affect the bias of watching the film at the end of the day. Yeah, And I'm yeah. drunk right now. <laughs> <laughs> Tim's a happy medium. He's at about a point one <laughs> right about now. He, those kids are more engaged than they've ever been before because he's up, he's on the, he's on his feet, he's talking about fucking Roosevelt and, and Churchill and Hitler and they're like, oh, yeah. And one all of the listeners pissed. are clapping along while Tim's just ranting madly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hemingway was locked all the time and he, he, you know, wrote his best stuff and you're like, oh my God, you're right. I mean, I, you say that with like, yeah, take heroin. You'll sound like Jimi Hendrix. Like, mm, yeah, that's no, 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 yeah. no, no. That's not how that works. That's the thing as well. Again, not supporting. There's two or three moments in the film where there's like, shit. This is a bit of a Chekhov's gun moment. We are we are setting ourselves up for something that's going to come back later that will ruin them or something. Like the dance. Like the dance. The fucking dance <laughs> on my back. It doesn't break his back. Um, <laughs> but the, I, I don't mind putting this into my review. It's not nearly spoilery. At one point, there's a kid who's very nervous, and one of the teachers, they're all very compassionate. They're very genuinely nice people. And he's like, what's wrong? He's like, I've, I've failed this test. I've already failed it. I'm not, I, can't, I can't even sit it. I'm so stressed. And of course, because he's the way he is, he's doing his little experiment, and he's obviously at this point a little locked himself. He's quite drunk. He's like, just, just take a shot before the test. And you're like, are you fucking mad? You're telling a <laughs> child to get 
not not drunk, but uh, take another shot. Let's just just two more. Mm. Um, and you think that's going to have huge ramifications later? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and you're like, huh? And things like that, for example, there are bits that aren't picked up for me personally. I was like, that feels odd. Mm. And again, I won't go into anything else otherwise. But it's it, it, there are just moments where the where the fallout seems to be. Um, there's there's a film, a Australian film called Somersault, where the description of it is a, a somersault is you start in one place, everything gets turned upside down, and you end up exactly where you were in the first place. So it's a fairly decent analogy. Now, obviously, a somersault for a man in their late forties, early fifties is going to break your hip or some shit. You feel there should be some sort of consequence, unless you're like you know Tom fucking Cruise, um, and these men, uh, you know, they're caliber, yes, but the 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 men they're portraying aren't. And you think. There should be something here. There should be some impact here. But overall, I'm these are minor, minor niggles. They are minor gripes. It is still, however, a fantastic movie, and I hold it above a lot of others in terms of its, its quality and caliber. So you know, it's not, it's, it's not that detrimental. But. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was very nearly my pick of the festival. Mm, so, I understand that. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. It's us again, Jack. It is something <laughs> on the same day, <laughs> no less. It was quite a quite a quite a double header going from right after that film straight into this li- film. Literally, like yeah, there was a fifteen minute break, something, I think, like, that. Or something yeah. like that, um, and straight from another round into Rose, a love story, and just from the title, you probably have no fucking idea what this is about. But it's about flowers. Review, bunch of flowers. Ex- exactly, exactly. If you've read Matt's review or heard Matt's review already, mm. you might know. This is a little bit of a twist on the old vampire genre. And I really wish I hadn't known that going into it. (laughs) But the the fucking synopsis and all the posters and stuff just spoiled it outright. And we also, as part of press, we also got like a behind the scenes little thing of like how they shot it and the crew and where it was all shot and behind the scenes like footage and, and stills and notes from producers and all this kind of stuff. It, first of all, it's a very small team. It's a very independent, low-key kind of... Uh, the, the writer is also the, the star, to put that into perspective. And, uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting, very... It feels even smaller than I think it is because you've got essentially the setting, the, the, this cabin in the middle of nowhere and a couple of other scenes outside of the cabin, and that's about it. And you have three principal characters in the entire film and there's like two other people that are even shown on screen at all <laughs> and that's your lot pretty much and basically there's this young couple and i heard you mention this in your review matt and i couldn't get my head around it it looks like it's in canada but they're very <laughs> clearly from the north of england yes and i had no idea going into it like i said what it was about or or anything like that until i saw the synopsis and it was like Hey, bagom, here's my fucking cabin. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> you see, like, the, the setup, like, the establishing shot of all these huge trees and this, like, snowy wilderness and this wood log cabin in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, oh, this is clearly, like, I don't know, somewhere in Colorado or somewhere in the Canadian Rockies. Like, nope, it's near Lancaster, mate. You're like, oh, okay. it's took north. I, I guess. Yeah. Is it, though? I guess it is. I don't really know. Yeah, shot in Britain, yeah. I think so. I don't know if it's purposefully vague or not, but oh yeah, it's it's the classic sort of like it's in the countryside, it's in the woods, and those yeah. woods, let's face it, look like fucking Bavaria. They look as you say, like Colorado and Denver. They look like 
all these places that you're like, oh yeah, that could be anywhere, you know, as, or, or half of Scandinavia. You know, it's 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 purposefully just remote Northern European look, and that's good. I think that helps because it helps feel isolated. Because if you say anywhere in Britain, for example, you're just like, oh, oh, it's near Manchester, which means as everything in Britain. It's about a twenty-minute drive from everything else. Yeah, I, th- I think if you if you grounded if the, if the filmmakers had grounded it in reality, it would have taken an element of the mystery and, like you said, the isolation particularly out of the film, which you really get a clear sense of yeah, just how yeah. isolated the main couple feel from the rest of the world. And spoiler alerts: the, the woman's name is Rose. So there you go, <laughs> Rose, the love story. And it really is a film about how far. Will you go to protect the ones you love? Uh, it boils down to that in a very kind of base sense, but uses the kind of vampire-ish kind of curse, affliction, infection. We don't really know how it's how it's transferred in that sense, but it uses that to discuss a few other themes and topics throughout the course of it as well. And I think it did a really good job in general. I think it's really well made. It's inc- in some brilliant performances from the three main characters. And yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. I had a couple of problems with kind of leaps of logic of like, what, why would you say that out loud kind of moments, which is kind of <laughs> typical for, for horror kind of stuff. Yeah. So there are moments where they the, the couple are clearly trying to hide that Rose, spoiler alert, is basically a vampire type creature and the her her partner her husband is trying to keep very quiet about the whole thing mm. and he just kind of mentions like oh yeah she doesn't like garlic like, well, well just don't say that because <laughs> he's growing all these vegetables and the, uh, they get this uh third member of the the household amber who's this young lady who gets trapped in one of their hunting traps they kind of bring her in to heal her up and then she starts snooping around and working stuff out and it was like I feel like you could have made this a lot easier on yourself if you hadn't put her in the, oh, I don't know, the ultraviolet light and leeches room. You <laughs> fucking idiot. I'm like, oh, what's with the ultraviolet light? And he's like, oh, it's uh, eczema, you know? Like, don't show her the fucking vampire room then. <laughs> oh, come and help me with the vegetables. Oh, do you like vegetables? Yeah. Do your wife? No. Or why are you cooking so many vegetables? Um reasons <laughs> that's a lot of garlic oh yeah love garlic me does your wife no she very specifically does not <laughs> like garlic funny you should mention that it's like just don't i guess i don't know if that says something about the character or the writing because he just kind of stumbles around and is like whoops here's my leeches and he just whips a fucking bottle of leeches out and starts sucking his own blood i'm like Go and do that in the living room, you fucking <laughs> What are you doing? Well, I mean, it, the thing is, because, okay, first of all, I enjoyed this film a lot as well. I like how it's made. I think uh, it, it does a lot like um, It Comes at Night does as well, where it, re- it doesn't really tell you a lot in terms of like the actual, the lore behind it. I know well, there's, Jack, there's no lore whatsoever. Yeah, I know Jack likes that kind of stuff. He likes rules. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this one doesn't give any of them because it's not important. It's not, it's not the story is the fact these two love each other. That's all that matters. Um, but then someone's like, yeah, but I got a lot of questions. And it's like, no, your questions are irrelevant. No, they're not. In that regard, so it comes at night. It's just like, here's the thing. It's more about the character situation in that moment. The rest of it is irrelevant. H- how did it happen? How long have they been doing this? What's their plan long term? It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters yeah. right now is that 
there's and a, and a key thing as well. These two actors are married in real life. Oh, are they really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they're a couple. Um, that they, makes a lot of sense. They got married in twenty May twenty nineteen, I think. So they think they're married at the time. But their dynamic is really fucking good, and it's the small things. Um, I know you can act that stuff with chemistry. You can act it very well. But there's also a nice little bond. It's it's obviously they they clearly have a nice affection for each other. But it's when they get fed up with each other. That feels very real. That's really oh, definitely, nice. Yeah, the, the performances and the dynamic between the two of them is, again, very much like another round. Very believable. And they're very human, mm. flawed performances. Yes. You know, there's not like, it's not one note, as I mentioned before. It, it takes the, the, the theme that it's trying to explore and uses dialogue and the little bit of lore and kind of world building we get is with the cabin itself and how they've kind of built themselves off the grid and how they've done all this stuff and the routine that he keeps talking about and oh you're gonna fuck up my ration count and all this kind of stuff and he's talking about like very specifically how he's it's almost like it's like zombie apocalypse style and you get the impression like oh my god this is the end of the world and then a bloke shows up in a truck and you're like oh the rest of the world is probably fine mm-hmm. <laughs> but they've purposefully closed themselves off. And I went into that, especially like I said, with the establishing shot of this kind of bleak forest and stuff like, oh, this is like post-apocalyptic or something like that. And the road or some shit. And then, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. If we want to talk about bleak, <laughs> but I kind of got the impression that like, no, the rest of life is probably ticking on fairly normally. There's a petrol mm. station that seems to be fairly normal and all this kind of stuff. But, yeah, I really enjoyed the performances. I really enjoyed the way it was shot. I enjoyed the themes that it explored and things like that. But there were just a couple of moments where they did the typical, like, why would you do that? Why would you say that? Shut up. Stop talking. Yeah. And you could play that in a way that Sam, the lead character, hasn't had much experience. And you can tell he's not a people person because he's closed himself off for so long and even isn't opening up to his wife, Rose, in that sense as well. Well, and- Amber has a good line, which is like, don't take this the wrong way. I mean, you're really nice and I like hanging out with you and your your husband's a dick. He's a dickhead. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, he's 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 good. He's got a he's good heart on him. But he's going through a lot of stuff. And that's that's the dynamic. And I and, and I can't stress this enough. The surreality for me personally of uh let's see, maybe Is your wife a vampire, Matt? Is that what you're trying to say? But no, I'm a dick. <laughs> oh, no, <I> <laughs> Uh, my wife's really nice and, and I'm a dick. No, no. Um, it, the well, fact so you've that, got lots uh, of traps around your house. Yeah, I do. I've seen home. I grew up at <laughs> home alone. Come on. Um, no, a couple of days prior, I saw Supernova with Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci about a couple, who, one of whom has um, a degenerative disease in the form of, like, you know, this onset dementia, sort of Alzheimer's kind of thing. And they're dealing with it and they have this routine and it's. The, the tension between them because of it is the, the, the one that isn't afflicted is trying to do everything they can to support the other one and the other one's getting kind of tired and fed up and they're taking out on each other. It's the same fucking story here. It's the same story for two different demographics. One's like, this is very stereotypically, one is like effectively trying to say, hey, are you a 50-year-old person who likes Colin Firth movies? Yeah, I love Colin. He's a lovely boy, isn't he? <laughs> Do you want to see a bit of a heart-wrenching story about him and his husband, really? And the one's got a, a disease. Oh, no, that's terrible. They've got a dog, too. Oh, a dog. Oh, yeah, I'd love that. Thank you. <laughs> and then what's well, like, hi, are you um in your 20s is kind of, you know, uncomfortable with society, but at the same time have a strong relationship or want a strong relationship? And you feel like you want a connection with somebody, but 
at the same time you don't you, you feel like you, there's something maybe wrong with you or them or something you, you just don't fit in personally and, and you, you also like gothic horror sort of stuff yeah I got this one here for you right here. It's the <laughs> same factory, as it were, pumping out the same stuff for different... And as I say, they are very, very reductive demographics there. But you know what I mean? It's the idea of if you were to market this specifically. But it, the story at the heart of it is still two people very much in love with each other, trying to make the best out of a terrible situation. One of them saying, I won't let you put yourself through this. And the other one saying, you don't get a choice. I swore to be beside you through this. Yeah. Exact same fucking story. A little bit different <laughs> endings. Um, <laughs> um, but I like Rose's love story a lot. I think a lot of people would say it's boring. That's my thing. I think there are three named characters and the third one doesn't turn up until the last half an hour. And the last 15 minutes is when the inverted commas horror stuff happens. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The last, not, not to spoil it too much, but the last two minutes. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> and it ends um, well. I think it ends perfectly, in my opinion. I, I do. I, yeah. I do as well. I think the, the ending is... Not not necessarily what I hoped or what I thought would happen, but I saw that and I was like, yeah, mm. that's exactly how this film should end. That's really well done. Yeah. I appreciate that. Mads Mikkelsen kicks him a door and starts dancing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I've had a little bit too much to drink. Oh, <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I recommend it. It's, it's a decent Every film. film should end with Mads Mikkelsen dancing. Yeah. Just, just put that out there. Yeah. There's nothing that isn't improved, as Tim's once said. By ending with a dance. <laughs> we should have a film where Sam Rockwell and Mads Mikkelsen play two rival dancers. And Christopher Walken. And Christopher Walken is yeah. the host John of the club who they're trying to get the attention of. John Travolta isn't John allowed Travolta. to be in this. he bring too much Scientology to it. Yeah, that's true. John Travolta and Christopher Walken are a gay couple owning the club. And that's it's a dance almost, off between uh, the hairspray. Hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. <laughs> oh, God. I've, I've said too much. You need a drunk Dane and a vampire. Um, <laughs> what's what's the 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 final cross of a film between you two? Kind of kind of a film, I guess. It's a concert film. I mean, it's it's a, it's a Spike Lee joint, which is a weird thing to say, but it's something Tim and I have both seen, and it is a concert film featuring David Byrne, or who you may know from Talking Heads or some of his solo stuff, or even his work with. Brian Eno and things like that. It is called American Utopia. For the young people listening, Talking Heads. Yeah, <laughs> band from the 70s and 80s. Exactly. Uh, I think the only some people would probably know from that thing is uh, Holly. You may ask yourself, <laughs> <laughs> how did I get here? And that kind of thing. Yeah. Or possibly Psycho Killer. Down, down, oh, yes. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the sort of vintage radio stuff that. Our parents listen to and we enjoy because of our age and things. But you know, I, know, I know Talking Heads because my dad's huge. Yeah, <laughs> I remember being on the radio yeah. as a kid. Yeah, and weird enough, the song that I knew for like my childhood, I guess, like the early two thousands, is "Lazy." I'm thinking that I'm lazy. See, it's I, David Byrne as well. Yeah, and that was in the show, and I was like, "Wow!" I was expecting that to be in there. That's so strange. So I. I, I I like um, Talking Heads and, and David Byrne as well. Uh, not one I grew up with, but but a band that I you know came to when I started you know listen, exploring kind of musical taste mm. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I almost got chucked out of my GCSE art exam because <laughs> it was uh, it was the summer when that uh, the the Express Two remix of Lazy uh, was in the charts, 
and it came up if you do an art exam at GCSE it's like 10 hours over two days of yep. producing a piece I'm sure you know lots of people know this but you we were allowed to have the radio on during it because you know it's a long fucking thing um and that song came on for the third time within the space of about probably within as many hours and I was just radio. Commercial radio and I was just like I've got to change the channel. Uh, and then I got shouted at by the invigilator. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went to the same school. Uh, I also did art and I got kicked out. And uh, <laughs> fuck that school when it comes to art. <laughs> they don't know what they're fucking talking about. Um, yeah, so um, this uh, Talking Heads famously uh, have kind of one of the most well-known concert films already. Uh, in the form of Stop Making Sense, the Jonathan Dem, Jonathan Demi uh, mm, film, mm. which I have not seen. Have you seen that, Jack? I have not. No. No. Um, so I, I it, again, it, when I told when I told my dad I was seeing this, you know, this for the film festival, I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing the Talking Heads concert film back in the day, and mm. blah blah blah. And I was like, yeah, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do feel kind of like because that's such a well known one. Um, it's a it's a bit like me going in to watch One Man and Shoots without having seen The Last Dance. Like there's a there's an essential bit of knowledge I'm I was lacking here. Yeah. Um but then that didn't particularly impinge my joint enjoyment of it. It was um it's mostly stuff from his one of his latest albums, but then with From the album American Utopia, funnily enough. There you go. Uh but with a few classics thrown in as well of course, and of course. it was a kind of a, a short run that he did i think it was in it was all in new york isn't it i think he did it on broadway yeah. did it on broadway yeah. yes to just do this show um like he's a great performer and the band are really fantastic uh in this piece i was a little bit disappointed by it Ooh. because i wanted it to be it starts out and it's him with a model brain uh, that he's kind of singing slash talking to. Um, mm-hmm. And I was hoping that there would be more, knowing that he is someone who is very much like this kind of art rocker pushing the boundaries of, of what to do with his music. He's, he's an eccentric, to say the least. Yes, I was hoping that there would be more eccentricity uh, in the show. I agree. And, I agree. And it's directed by Spike Lee, I did not really feel much of a directorial vision in it. Like it's it's very well shot, um, and I think it captures things like the choreography that's involved in the show and stuff like that very well. But Spike Lee, to with the limited amount of Spike Lee that I've seen, he seems like someone with a very powerful authorial voice, and mm. there didn't seem to be really any of that in this. I agree. If I had been, if it was just like he he is a david byrne concept film never in a million years would i've guessed this is a spike lee joint mm. there's that from, again from from my exposure to spike lee i wouldn't have gone oh that's clearly that camera shot or that particular editing technique or whatever for whatever reason his cinematography has not translated to this mm. and i don't know if that's because he's just like mates with David Byrne and he thought, oh, this is cool project to get involved with. I'd like to be behind the camera and kind of help you produce it or whatever. I have no idea. Yeah. But it didn't, I agree with you, it didn't really feel very much like a, a clear 
directorial voice, it felt far more like this is David Byrne's show. Mm. And I, again, whether that was a conscious choice to be like, let's focus on the music and focus on the performance, because the real thing I took away from this is, first of all, David Byrne is an awesome guy. Yeah. Mm. Like, I, I had no idea. I didn't know much about him personally going into it. Mm. And as soon as he starts like basically doing like stand up skits between the songs, he's like, well, uh, back in the eighties when I was in talking heads and everybody goes, woo, talking heads. He's like, Oh, uh thanks i suppose yeah yeah cool and then like drops a few jokes and it has a few funny stories and anecdotes and stuff and then it very quickly spins off into him talking about his personal history and for those of you who don't know david byrne is originally born in scotland then moved to north america to canada and then is now an american citizen mm. so he then uses that to then talk about immigration and immigrants and how that works and then he mentions like each member of his band is from a different different place in the world like this guy's from toronto this guy's from brazil this lady is from colombia and he like goes through each of his band members and how multicultural and multinational his band is and and it's a real diverse group of people and you've got even like you know he he you know, you get the typical like it's Bob on guitar and Dave on the drums and they do a little solo and stuff, but he uses that to then build the rest of the song and also introduce and use that as a discussion about the political situation we're currently in to the point where he's like, Oh, by the way, at the back of the theater, there's like machines and stuff where you can just hit a button and it will register for you to vote. So hmm. go and vote motherfuckers. I was like, Fuck yeah, David Byrne. You like for a, what a seventy-year-old white guy! I was like, mm. "Wow, he, he's he's kicking some ass. He's he's really <laughs> like pushing pushing the boundaries for what I think." Because I feel like so many people tend to play it safe mm. a lot these days, and will like not tend to be very poli- as politically outspoken as he is in this in this concert film. And that was my big takeaway. And I know something. And I, Tim and I were watching it. I think I was about ten or fifteen minutes ahead of mm. Tim in the screening, and and that he does a cover at the end. Um, which has since become quite controversial, and we'll get onto that in a moment. Mm. But it's a cover of a Janelle Monet song, and I know you're a huge Janelle Monet fan, Tim. Yeah. And I was just like, "Oh, Tim's gonna fucking love this." <laughs> and finding out that David Byrne personally reached out to Janelle Monet, I was like, "Hey, I know I'm a white guy in my seventies, and I know you're a woman of color with a really powerful message. Do you mind if I do this song?" Mm. And she's like. Yeah, cool. That yeah, expose it to your audience. That's fantastic. I'm glad you're taking it and using it in a positive way. And she was surprised he even bothered reaching out because people don't nice tend to do to that recover. for covers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Most people are just I'm going to cover your song. I'm going to I'm going to twist it and turn it and turn it into my message. A lot of people do that. I will change the lyrics to change the gender or something and make mm. it more. A lot of people do it where they make it more politically correct, which is the whole thing of like, oh, we'll twist it this way or twist it that way or. You know, it it is originally a song about a, you know, a homosexual couple or something like that, but they're playing it on the radio, so it has to be a heterosexual <laughs> couple now, and now all the he's become she's because you can't do that on public radio. But fuck no, David Byrne, and by the way, it's a Black Lives Matter protest song, <laughs> and this seventy-year-old white guy is just shouting, "Say their name." say their name to the crowd and the whole band and the whole crowd are chanting say their name and it's the pictures of 
all the people that have suffered, you know, the Eric Garners and the Trayvon Martins and mm-hmm, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. All the people you've seen mm-hmm. in coverage over the news over the last years or so. God, it's years Since at this point. Since television was invented. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And it felt like a really powerful moment. It goes back to Emmett Till. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. way back in, you know, it's it, not just the recent victims of, you know, yes, uh, yeah. police violence. Yeah, I, I I thought like those moments I really liked the the moment like when he introduces the band and you get that slow build of the song and I think yeah the the final song the cover of the Janelle Monae song is incredibly powerful. Um, uh, I think I just I I would have liked a bit more personality from him to come through, and I, I I'm not sure like. Um, how I would have liked to have seen it, but like the it, it, I've seen some concert films where, as much as they're filming the show, there's also other stuff around it. Like the one that I always hold up as a very good one is um, "Shut Up and Play the Hits," the oh, uh, yeah. LCD sound system film, where it's their final concert at Madison Square Garden, but final in in inverted commas. But it's it's uh, there's moments of um, interviews with James Murphy cut into it, um, and that makes for a really interesting experience because it's kind of it's delving into his okay, well, this is your last show. Like, how do you feel about it? You know, when you uh, one of the great questions is like, when you start a band, do you think about how it's going to end uh, and stuff like that? And 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 him discussing uh, his kind of musical philosophy and David Byrne's such an interesting character. Uh, such an interesting artist that I would have liked to have dug more into like okay you know like obviously a lot of of these songs have kind of meanings behind them like let's explore some of that Um, but it's you know that is all kind of my expectations going in as it's a fantastic like show. I think you know he is a fantastic performer. The band that yeah. he's with are all terrific. Um, I think I just wanted a little bit more from it. Yeah, this felt like something I would have loved to have seen in the theatre, as in in the show theatre. Actually, mm. oh in yeah. yeah, the the uh, where did they record it? Let me just have a quick look. I'm guessing it was kind of late 2019, probably. Yes, yes, yeah. it was. It was it was filmed fairly recently mm. and. It just made me miss live music. Yeah. It didn't make me think, this is a really cool concert film. What a unique and interesting thing. It was like, mm. I wanted to see this live, not I wanted to see this on the big screen. Uh, yeah, I think sense. I think that's the thing, is that like, it's a really well-filmed concert, but there was, n- there was nothing in the film that you couldn't have got better by being at the concert on a I day that it was being agree. performed like and if you're going to make a film of something that's a live experience then you need to use the strength of film to bring in something different um and really all you know aside from that sometimes you know you had camera shots that were from above and stuff like that so you could see how the people were moving around on the stage that you would not normally be able to see that was about the limit of what it brought in terms of what film can do to add to the experience yeah I think Tim is entirely correct. You don't have to just do a sports broadcast, which is basically just point the camera, let them do the stuff, maybe show some behind the scenes, some linesmen running around, who knows? Oh, that's a different angle you wouldn't <laughs> usually see if you were in the if you were in the stadium. Oh, it's a close up. That's very interesting. 
Mm. Um, and that's literally only the length of the concert and that's all you get. No, if it's going to be a piece and it's going to have a lot of um, opinion and a lot of a, a very strong message throughout, push that. And I'm mm. very surprised to hear that because obviously Burns got his very strong personality. Now, obviously, yes, he puts that on stage. Um, so, of course, everything about the presentation, what you guys have described, makes sense. But Spike Lee not into to weaving stuff feels very odd mm. because like if you think about Black Klansman and how that movie closes um, with the final I don't remember Black Klansman as a film but the final scene of the movie uh, takes place and then you get video footage of protests and you know archive footage of Trump talking and stuff and it's like this is happening now. I know this film is a period piece set in the past, but it is happening now. Hmm. You know, the KKK are frankly infiltrating the White House, that kind of thing. It's like, it doesn't hold its punches. It's saying strong things bluntly because you need to hear it bluntly. And while it sounds like Byrne is doing that, you are literally, as you say, just getting a almost, uh, what's called the red button, as it were, on like uh, mm. British television. We press red button for an alternate camera angle. <laughs> um, just like yeah I, I get it that's cool but I'm not trying to talk down the effort because at the end of the day just filming a live concert or a, a, you know five live concerts meshed into one mm. uh, edit like this is very difficult it's a very, it's a very demanding thing to do but if it's just a straight shot of what you would have seen if you were there in the room at the time what are you trying to achieve in a weird way yeah, and one of the highlights for me was funny enough, right at the very end, you see them walk off stage together and you really see the camaraderie between the band and like you get the impression like David Byrne is kind of this father figure to them all because mm. he is probably 10, 15, 20 years younger than the next oldest person in this band. In general, they appear to be quite a young group of people mm. and I believe Byrne is in his early 70s at this point, like late late 60s, mm. sorry. He's in his late 60s. And you get the impression that like they all come up to him and like give him hugs and he pats them on the back. He's like, oh yeah, amazing. So, so well done. Thank you so much, David, for putting this together, all this kind of stuff. And you get this really emotional moment. And you see that like literally they walk off stage and you see them kind of, you know, taking their ties off and whatever. and Because they wear these like matching grey suits as well. It's very kind of like visually are they, David Burney. <laughs> are they normal size grey suits? They are, they are normal sized. Unfortunately, they? yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who's seen um, Stop Making Sense. Yeah. That's disappointing. <laughs> I'm not saying play the old hits and do the same thing again and get in the old fucking giant suit again, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's similar. It's, he's still wearing a grey suit. Yeah, 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 of course, big, of course. yeah. That's his vibe. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it is the the final moments of the film that it does burst out and do something different. Where you have those moments of them at the end of the show, like in the aftermath of it, and then you see them all leave the the uh, theater, and it's them riding bikes through New York as the um yeah, as the nice. credits play, um, and like that that I all, thought all was... the crowd cheers and they're like woo oh my god it's david burns yeah like, hey guys see you later puts on a bike helmet and you're like wait what yeah and he just so he just cycles off down the road yeah and and then suddenly all the band joined him and that's and an exit him as, as the credits roll like yeah. here, here's the bass player and he's there just cycling along <laughs> here's one of the drummers and he's just cycling along wait wait <laughs> it ends the same way that dad's army ends <laughs> kind of, yeah. brilliant and I, I agree with you tim if we had more stuff like that like mm -hmm. maybe 
that intercut with the with the film and the actual concert yeah. and having that give it more of like a I don't know if you like interviews with the band members or something like that. That might have mm. been a bit clunky, but something where you see that camaraderie on and off stage a bit more. Yeah. Whereas as much as I really enjoyed it and it made me go and listen to more talking heads for the record. Like I was <laughs> like after this I was like, fuck yeah, I need to go back and listen to, you know, some of the the Burn and Eno stuff. Mm. Um one of my favourite albums of his was their most recent album. Everything that happens when happened today from about ten years or so ago. And that's a very kind of like weird folk electronica album from Brian Eno and David Byrne. And that's one of the things one of the things that my dad has kind of instilled in me is is stuff like that. And it made me just want to go and listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I would say if you if you get a chance to see it, and especially if you're a fan of Talking Heads or David Byrne, I'd recommend mm. it. But if you get a chance to see it live when we're all allowed outside <laughs> to, to go to concerts and gigs and stuff, I'd recommend doing it that way. Cause I think it was a really amazing experience if you were there live. Whereas it makes a, a really good film cause it's just a good performance, but there wasn't really much need to have another person behind the camera or Spike Lee directing the whole thing really. Yeah. Mm. That's all of our crossovers. Should we do our highlights? Uh, yeah. Jack, do you want to kick us off? I will kick us off with something that I had no expectations going into and ended up really, really loving because I'm, I think it's a documentary, <laughs> <laughs> which mm. is a weird sentence to say, but the film Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is the last 24 hours of a bar called the Roaring Twenties in Las Vegas before it closes down seemingly for good. And it's all the old regulars and the alcoholics and karaoke singers all returning for one last hurrah of their favourite dive bar in Las Vegas. And it is so, again, real and believable and compelling and really well, well shot and edited together. They, they've done this brilliant technique where they sew the scenes together by panning up to the TV and like, oh, there's some new news coverage that's happening, and then the camera swings back around, and there's a different conversation happening at the bar, and some time has passed, and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And it's edited that it feels like it's in real time, but you know it's not, otherwise the film would be 20 hours long. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just brilliantly done, and there, there's... If it, if it was written, I don't think it is. I think it is real, but I've yet to find anywhere that actually confirms that. And most of the reviews I've read of like... Yeah, it feels really real. I think it's real. <laughs> okay, good. It's not just me. Uh, I, I'm 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 pretty certain it's it's an actual place and an actual uh, actual documentary. And you get moments where there's like a conversation happening at one end of the bar, and the camera will kind of move past those two guys, and then you'll hear an argument happening in the corner. And as you get closer and closer, the argument kind of comes into focus. And that would be a really clever like writing and camera technique if you were doing that but I think it's just real <laughs> just moving from one conversation to the next. But in the same way that multiple conversations are happening at once in a real bar, you get that impression and you can kind of choose to pay attention to the guy on the left or the guy on the right. And then suddenly the bartender whips out a guitar and starts singing a final song and kicks off the karaoke for everybody. And a, a, um, a transgender prostitute shows up and she kicks off this amazing like karaoke thing and, it's got an amazing uh, 
soundtrack because it's just stuff off the jukebox. There's just like Motorhead and Queen playing in the background and stuff like that. I'm like, did you get the licensing for this? Probably <laughs> not, but but fuck it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I had no expectations going into it, but it tells some brilliant stories of these characters and these people and their yeah highs and lows some people saying like oh i haven't been here in years but i had to come back to say goodbye there's younger people there's older people there's uh i haven't i barely left this bar in the last 10 years i'm an alcoholic tragic stories and then there's like the son of the owner who's just being a little shit outside and just secretly smoking weed and drinking and then his mum comes out and she's like are you drinking out here and he's like uh no no and then he goes in and just starts like dancing with everyone and stuff and yeah it just felt really human and really real and it's a lovely little sort of slice of life for the last moments of that bar and it doesn't feel like a special bar necessarily it just feels like this could be any dive bar in in, in almost in the in america certainly but giving it that structure and having that kind of finite this film ends when the bar closes kind of thing made it really compelling and really interesting. I wonder if there's some sort of um, subconscious thing there. And again, I, I, it's impossible not to draw this comparison and it's impossible not to talk about it because it's affecting everybody. But again, got to talk about the pandemic, the nature of something shutting down. That's been an institution for a mm. long time. There's lots of that going on right now. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty. Yeah. A lot of, and also just seeing people being a family unit, being friends, misfits grouped together at a pub, almost cheers style, you know, the place that you can go to because it's your set and it's no longer there anymore. That feels like, you know, pandemic talk. That feels like, you know, the, the, the comfort that I had, the, the, the stability, whatever it is, whether it's, you say, like live music or whether it's just a pub or something being taken away for whatever means or purposes, can probably strike a very strange subliminal subconscious chord within you. Um, I wonder if that may, may have... Because um... obviously, yeah, you're you're a musician. You've played in dive bar sort of situations, I imagine. How dare you, sir? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the type of, you know, oddball misfits that that, that um, patron these places and stuff, and, and um, the weird local stories and atmosphere and attitude it's a very specific thing and to capture it with the last days of anything with that kind of crew is always interesting so yeah i think i think it's a uh, it's one of those ones I, I missed um because i needed to stop and take something in my <laughs> face and eat um <laughs> but um yeah kind of wish i'd seen it because jack made it sound very interesting i recommend it if you do get the chance i probably yeah. will i'll, I'll yeah, get around to it, yeah. you'd enjoy it i'll pass it over to you matt as literally was mentioned at the at the start of this episode. Um, I watched a fuck ton of films, um, and nothing was bad. Everything was good. Um, I didn't review all of them. Um, I, I I wrote reviews for a lot of them. Um, I think about half of what I've, I watched I reviewed, which basically means I wrote about ten thousand words, and um, and recorded my general reaction in my own little breakdown. So there are. Uh, more in-depth versions of what I'm about to say anyway, but my highlights specifically um, I couldn't pick one I know, I know, I know, it's Matt, you can't pick one but it, it, just the fact that everything is such a, of such high calibre it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say, this was the one out of 20 films I watched that are all literally some of the best of the year um, 
So my two choices were Wolfwalkers. It's an animated movie by Tom Moore and his studio. Tom Moore is an Irish director um, who did uh, Secret Kells and uh, Song of the Sea, which I mentioned in Feel Good episode. And I love the artistic style. And Wolfwalkers is fucking fantastic. Um, just beautifully shot, really compelling story, um, very emotional, amazing score. I, I, I said in my review, and I stand by this, it's a very bold sentence for somebody very early in their career, but fuck it. <laughs> Japan has Miyazaki, Ireland has more. Because wow. he is genuinely creating flawless films and not just him but i mean the his, the entire studio because they made breadwinner as well which is a separate film entirely different separate fire but obviously the artistic style is very unique and things and they are one with nature they talk about folklore and fantasy and culture and history and shine like me people don't necessarily know about stuff and the family dynamics are always a bit uncomfortable and there's always young leads in the story and they're the like you know the the, the children aren't talked down to they further the story and they are transported into a magical world that's just beyond their own, etc. It feels like I'm describing a fucking Miyazaki story. <laughs> and on top of that, it's gorgeous and fun and hilarious. So Wolfwalkers is is fucking chef's kiss. I absolutely adore that film. But I always was going to adore that film. Of course I fucking was. Um, that's got Sean Bean in it. Hey. <laughs> what more could you need yeah. from a good old Yorkshire boy? Sean Bean saying, I've got to do the right thing and kill these wolves. No, you don't, Daddy. They're my friends. Did you, are you sure you didn't just watch the first episode of Game of Thrones? I'm pretty sure I didn't. <laughs> there were no boobs. Anyway, that was gorgeous and amazing and a, a fantastic movie, and I recommend it thoroughly. The other one that I recommended highly, and one that's based on a play, uh, Regina King's directorial debut, One Night in Miami. I fucking love this movie. It was great. It was so competitive. If you want to see four powerhouse actors who are at the start of their career, watch this movie. Every single one of them is playing a titan of industry, uh, whether it's music, sports, politics, well, sports, football, and boxing. Um, but, you know, they're playing iconic African-American roles. And... The play is just about just after Muhammad Ali, well, Cassius Clay had just beaten Sonny Liston and was about to take on the name Muhammad Ali uh, with Malcolm X at his side and stuff. And um, and the fact that Sam Cooke and, and Jim Brown are there at the same time, they're, they're age old friends from, from years and years and years ago. Very conflicting images about where, you know, African-American side should be going and their responsibility as African-Americans in the spotlight and all that sort of stuff. And it's so good. And the play itself is just them in a hotel room, but there's about another half an hour beforehand setting the scene, just establishing who these people are. And just those little vignettes are so good that when you get into the point that it should be a film of two halves, it should feel like it's disjointed. It's not. It's great. And Regina King's direction is really solid for a, you know, for a first-time outing. If this film specifically does not get, I mean, heavy... Oscar buzz. Mm. I will be mightily fucked off. I d Interesting. I, I didn't manage yeah. to catch it, but I saw basically as soon as this was like, as soon as the embargo or whatever was gone mm. and people were talking about it, people were like, watch this one for Oscars because yeah. it's gonna, it's gonna do well. 
Yeah, there was there was a lot of really standout ones that you think, oh, Ammonite, that's going to be one of those ones that will do well. That uh, Supernova, people will be talking about these movies because, you know, they'll be in the cultural sort of consciousness mm. because of the people involved and the talent involved. Um, but One Night in Miami is, I mean, it's got Malcolm X in a room saying, we need to be doing more as. African Americans, people are be- our people are being killed in the streets every single day, and it's the fact that I actually watched um shortly afterwards a um interview from the from the Toronto International Film Festival because uh, that's why I think it had a premiere like a, like the month prior as as Tim said a lot of these films did as we said yeah. exactly and the fact that um who was it, it Aldous Hodge I believe. He was saying that he hadn't seen the movie. Well, no, like classically in in premiere fashion, they didn't see it until the film started at, at the festival. Hmm. And he said, seeing it now, with what we're going through right now, it hits an entirely different level. It was it was important and pertinent then. It's doubly important now, and it is. And it's and, and the fact is that half of the car and it's obviously based on real individuals. The conversation itself is fictitious, but the actual event is real. And the fact that there are four really talented black men in the main role, in terms of actors and obviously the characters. And of those four characters, within a year, a year later, two of them are dead yeah. through yeah. aggravated assault and shooting and obviously a potential assassination, all different bits yeah. and pieces. And it's like, yeah, this is the point. And it's, it's, you know, you're watching, like, I watch Undina, which is a great German film about this sort of uh, twist on, on, on an old folk tale, as it were, an old bit of... Um, um, mythology is like, oh, that's cool. I really enjoyed that. It's really good. And then you watch this one and go, oh, this one's important. <laughs> this one's this one's important. Um, so yes, that was my highlight. Tim, what's your highlight? Um, I, sh- I should be very brief with mine because we've already talked about it. Mine was uh, one man and his shoes. Mm. Um, just because, like I say, so many of this, so many, uh. So much of my experience with this was seeing stuff that I would never think to to see normally. Mm. And I yeah. definitely wouldn't have thought to watch this. And it it was so it, it delivered its information so well. Um something that could have been quite dry and you know, I wasn't necessarily, you know, a person who would key into this stuff and be like, Oh, that's something that really interests me. But it it grabbed hold of me and it and it made it interesting and it ends with such a uh an important emotional component which i think puts it above just being something oh here's this interesting thing that happened and that's a a fun nexus of culture to something where it's like it is all those things but it also had a a toll in blood and you know we need to think about what that says about you know how we consume things, how we how we view things. Um, so yeah, I, I was really impressed by it. Well, those are our highlights. Those are some of the films we crossed over, and at least two of us. But like you said, Matt, not all three of us saw <laughs> the same film, which is bizarre. But uh, yeah, if you want more in depth reviews and stuff like that, you can go and check out the redrighthand.co.uk for Matt's written reviews. You can go and check out our Patreon for some of the audio clips. Where we go a bit more in depth. And uh, yeah, I, overall, it was a big success and we really enjoyed it. Mm. And mm. kind of us branching out as a podcast going from sequels to press coverage is kind of interesting. It's quite nice. 
<laughs> and we should say that Patreon stuff, even if you are not a supporter on Patreon, yes, it's publicly accessible. So all of our yep. reviews and completely coverage... free, available for everybody. Mm-hmm. Just need to go and uh, if basically if you click on the page as a non-subscriber, you can still see those posts. So you can just scroll down and find them there. And there's a few audio clips from each of us doing solos, basically like twenty to thirty minutes each of uh, discussing <laughs> our experiences so far and kind of summarizing. We did the first one and everyone was like, oh, for God's sake, mate, went for half an hour. Then you guys went and said, like, oh, no, about half an hour seems right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, Matt did half an hour. How typical. Mm. Looks down at the clock, 26 minutes. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think all in all, we've given you an extra three, maybe three and a half hours of content. So, for, again, to clarify, for free. So please feel free to go check it out. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm. And it's something I think we'd like to do in the future again as well. Oh, so yeah. We'll be looking to do... A bit more branching out from just bad sequels and stuff. Don't worry. This will not change the structure of the show. We will not suddenly become a film review podcast or anything like that. We will be and always are the sequelizers Mm. slash (laughs) prequelizers. So don't worry about that. We will be back with normal season stuff and in-season stuff in the future. Mm -hmm. But we just thought this was a nice little way to give you guys some extra content and for us to try something new for the show and for ourselves as well. And... Yeah, make it feel like we're part of a community when we're not allowed to leave our houses and <laughs> go and see each other. So, yeah. and and let us know if you if if uh if our coverage has inspired you to check any of these out yes, once they do become yes. available to the public because uh, we'd we'd love to know that. Yeah, I definitely, that. definitely. If you want to follow us on social media or anything like that, you can go follow us, Sequelizers, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's nice and easy. It's all, it's all spelt the same as it is in the podcast app you're listening to us right now. It's the British way, and there's no Zs. Don't worry. You can also go to sequelizers.com. There's links to all the social media, to the Patreon I mentioned, to the Discord we've mentioned before as well. All the links, all the merch, all the possible things you could ever want are at sequelizers.com. And also available in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile as well if you want to go and find that. So you can go and check out all of that stuff in one nice, neat little package very easily. If you'd like to follow me personally, I am JLW Chambers on basically all the social media. Again, nice and easy. Uh, Matt, how can people follow you on social media? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. As mentioned uh, quite a few times, the red right hand at Cody K for my reviews and cheeseman.com for the things I make. Tim, where you at? Trivia underscore lad on Twitter uh, is where I make most of my noise. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that out of the way, we'll be back next week with more regular scheduled interseason stuff. It's uh, a bit, bit, bit more uh, back, back to normal. And then in a few weeks, it's going to be season seven, ladies and gentlemen, ooh, ooh, and it's ooh. a banger to kick off. So uh, <laughs> get excited, get excited. But until then, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week. See you later. Bye. Bye.